This episode is brought to you by Patreon, specifically the Comic Pop Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash comic pop and find out more about how you can keep the lights on here at Comic Pop. And don't worry, we've got plenty of fun rewards, including early access to videos and weekly updates about what's happening here at the studio. That's patreon.com slash comic pop. All right, let's get on with the show now. Sweeping down upon the underworld to smash gangland comes the friend of the unfortunate, enemy of criminals. Mysterious, all-powerful character, a problem to the police, but a crusade of the law. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Exchange. I am Sal, and I'm joined today by the indomitable Ron Mars. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Uh, no worries. It's not like we're going anywhere. So, <laughs> no, you know, yeah, you are a captive audience. Everybody's a captive audience right now. <laughs> That's right. No, I'm talking everybody. You are all a captive audience, uh, chiefly among them. Mr. Mar- uh, Ron Mars, uh, we've never actually interacted outside of one interaction, and I find that kind of a baffling, given how many books I've talked about of yours on this channel and how influential you are in the industry itself. Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't know if you remember, but literally, like I think this past Baltimore Comic Con, I got you to sign one of my Green Lantern books. <laughs> um, no, it was like I, yeah, I I'm, think a thousand I'm not going to lie can... and say, oh yeah, I remember that exactly. Cause, no, because that would be a lie. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, I've signed a, I've signed one or two Green Lanterns in my in my time. Yeah, uh, I actually, yeah. I, like at shows now, I, I actually know what books people are bringing up if they're if they're holding them like this with mm-hmm. the with the back of the book, the back cover of the book toward me. Right. I know what issue it is because I recognize the ads on the back. Yes, you're like, oh, it's Zit Fighters Matter Space. I know who that is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, man, so there's there's so many avenues we could take uh, because right now we're kind of in this weird place in the comic book industry, but there's also comments that were made by Gail Simone that I really want to get into because she's advocating for a DC Marvel crossover again. And you're kind of at the epicenter of the original DC Marvel crossover, uh, and so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Just if you're sure. if you're down, uh, because DC versus Marvel sales juggernaut, if not utterly ridiculous, but I think one of those like necessary injections into the industry at the time, and I could see the parallels being like, oh man, you know, comic book stores oh. are closed. Yeah, by far. I mean, that was that was the original impetus behind dc versus marvel in the first place was that the you know the direct market crashed after the speculator boom and the the stores needed a product to get people back into the stores and also you know obviously we sold a ton of them so um uh you know this you know the, the the deep dark secret of comics right it's it's the shotgun marriage of art and commerce yes the whole you know the whole the whole reason behind what publishers do is they're there to sell copies. That's what, you know, that's, that's the business they're in. Um, I don't know that, that creators feel like, Oh, what, you know, what story can I tell that will sell the most? Mm. I don't think that's the way most creators approach it. Obviously, you know, we want to, we want to sell books and we want to, you know, because that's a self propagating system. Exactly. Books you, you, you get to keep making books. Exactly. Um, so, um, you know, Marvel versus DC was was absolutely that shotgun marriage of of art and commerce, and and I was on the art uh, art end of it. Um, <laughs> Writing is art. No, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean the sort of art with a capital A. Yeah, uh, because you know it was it was a it was a project designed to to be a crowd pleaser, to be a, you know, to be a popcorn, you know, summer tentpole movie kind of thing. And, you know, it's, it's what comics do best in a lot of ways. Hey, let's have everybody fight. Right. (laughs) Uh, And, and, and wouldn't that be the model for everything? Little did they know, little did you know, uh, 20 years later, civil war kind of reminded everybody, Hey, I want to see all my superheroes punch each other. And it looks like we've never really shaken that off. Well, you know, that's part and parcel of, of what, it, in particular, superhero comics sure. do well, is it's, you know, these are big, uh, bombastic, you know, action spectaculars. Yeah. Uh, it's not a, you know, it's not an accident that, that Jack Kirby is the, the greatest among us ever, mm-hmm. you know, and he he drew a bunch of funny looking people beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, on, on, on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, look, comics are are much more than just that, but um, 
that's one of the things we do really well. Um, and I think, I think the overall sense of over the top action that comics do really well, um, is finally translatable into movies. And that's why we have, you know, the Marvel universe, uh, dominating the world the last decade or so. Um, technology finally caught up with comics, you know, the, the digital technology finally caught up with what we've been doing in comics for 50 years. Yeah, we can finally actually see what Jack Kirby was thinking the whole time. Like, besides, yeah. what the, I mean, like, uh, the page, you know, there is something to be said for the page, though. I mean, like, we haven't really come close to what some of the best artists in the in the business have been able to achieve, I think. like. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I, to me, comics will always be, you know, a step ahead of whatever is up on the screen because... Yeah. Um, their, their comics and, and film are sort of bastard cousins. Right. It, it's not, it's not one-to-one. Everybody wanted, I, I know that like you, you've probably recognized this back in the day, like the, the whole, everybody's like, what movie should they make? Or how, what, what, what actor would play this thing? Like everyone always immediately approximates comic books to movies, maybe because of the storyboard aspect and the fact that comics are essentially like one step in the movie process. But like everybody always assumes Man, this comic's great. Wouldn't it make a great movie? And it's like, well, who's to say that movies are the next step up? And it's more yeah, like I, they're a step laterally, like sideways. Yeah, I, I see them as completely, you know, they're, they're different animals with a lot of similarities. That's true, um, yeah. And um, look, it, you know, it's not an accident that, like, the coolest the coolest moments in Watchmen, for instance, the, the movie. Yeah. Um, the coolest moments from Watchmen are cribbed directly from what Dave Gibbons did on the page. Completely. Yes. Like, like they, they, you know, they, they are basically those, those instances are basically filmed panels. Yes. Um, just from the angles that, that Dave selected and everything. So I, I think that's just one example that shows you the power of what comics do. Um, and the, the way that, um, that film really imitates comics still. Yeah. Uh, I don't, uh, which isn't this? I know it's not to say it's it's a it's a bad thing. No, or to, or to denigrate what film does at all. Um, film was obviously the you know the popular medium across the world. Everybody goes to see the new Avengers movie. Not everybody reads the next Avengers issue that comes out. Yeah, um, and that's you know. And and look, do we wish that you know the worldwide movie audience was the same? We we had the same numbers for for comics readership. Sure, but. Um, you know, a lot more people go see a Stephen King movie than read a Stephen King book. It's That's just, very true. It's just the nature of of reading, frankly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, they're like I said, they're they're bastard cousins, um, but I think there's still some stuff that comics does even better than films, and um, I feel like I'd ra- you know I'd rather get a new Hellboy comic than a new Hellboy movie. I think uh, um, everyone else would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> based yeah, I mean, on the numbers well you know I, which isn't to say i don't enjoy the hellboy movies i do yeah. um but there's something about what we make in comics that is to me uh for me personally just a, a, a superior experience to to any movie or tv show absolutely um man you know apropos movies and comics and the marriage thereof and then linking it back to you actually being here uh, you wrote a book that I unabashedly love, and it's a it's one of those crossovers that you're kind of like, why would you do this? And then once you read it, you're like, holy crap! And it's Batman Aliens. I adore that book. I think it has you know it's a fifty fifty thing, right? It's it's a really killer alien story. Plus, you also have, of course, the incredible art. Um. Man, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that that Wrightson guy was okay. He yeah, was, Bernie Wrightson, <laughs> man. You uh, now you worked with Bernie Wrightson like f- you you had been working with him kind of forever at by that point, given your history together. Um, I understand yeah. that you in high school you interviewed him for your newspaper. Yeah, I uh, a, a buddy and I went to Bernie's place. Um, I grew up in the Hudson Valley in uh, Kingston, New York. I'm, I am a, a proud Kingston High graduate. And um, I knew from looking at the local newspaper that 
you know, famous artist Bernie Wrightson lived in, in Woodstock, which was, you know, 15, 20 minutes away from Kingston. And, you know, for the school new for the high school new, school newspaper, um, we we went out and uh, arranged to interview Bernie and he welcomed us to a studio and everything. So I'm like a 17 year old kid. And we, you know, go to Bernie's studio and and interviewed him and did a did a story on it and everything. And that's how I met him. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, ended up doing the same thing a few years later for my college newspaper. Uh, and we ended up being buddies after that. And he invited me to his Halloween parties. And, you know, I just sort of got drawn into that social circle of comic and um, illustrators, comic artists, writers and illustrators that lived in the Hudson Valley. Right. And um, that's how I met Jim Starlin, who eventually ushered me into the business. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I knew Bernie for, you know, since I was 17. So, you know, more than 30 years. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and eventually we just ended up working together on stuff, which, which obviously is a, you know, that those are kind of pinch me moments. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was weird for me because, you know, Bernie and I had been friends forever. And, um, so there was Bernie, my buddy that we would go have beers and pizza and go watch crappy horror movies together. And, and, um, you know, we played racquetball a few times a week, uh, even when I was in college you know, so I, you know, I had this, you know, these were people that I saw three, four times a week and just hung out with. And then there was, oh, yeah, that's that's Bernie Wrightson who drew Frankenstein and created Swamp Thing. And, yeah. You know, so there, there were like two there were two Bernie's really. Yeah. And I I would have to step back and remind myself of, you know, genius artist Bernie Wrightson that's that's the guy i'm you know sitting at a bar having a beer with right um because you know he, there were no you know bernie was not uh full of himself in any way he was not a uh you know he 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 didn't he was just a regular guy he yeah. was just you know he was just a guy so when we worked together on stuff i would be sort of caught between those two things uh and reminded that oh yeah like he's 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 my buddy and we're going to go to a diner and, you know, and then we're going to talk about the story that we're going to do. And he's yeah. going to, you know, he's going to draw some shit on a napkin <laughs> and it's going to boggle my mind. Totally. Uh, so, yeah. So doing Batman aliens with Bernie, which, which was actually a story that uh, I think he and I were coming back from, from somewhere. It might've been one of the old conventions in New York city. We were, we had, you know, we were riding together and, we ended up kicking around like what we wanted to do. And I think Bernie was the one who suggested, well, what about, you know, what about Batman aliens? And, <laughs> and it was a sort of thing where, where, you know, we didn't think they'd actually do it. Sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Bernie was uh, friends with Bob Shrek, who was the editor at dark horse who had the aliens franchise under his wing. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I eventually got to be really good friends with Bob Shrek, who's, you know, one of the best editors I've ever worked with. So Bernie called called Bob and said, "Hey, you know, what do you what do you think about um, us doing Batman Aliens?" And they they jumped all over it. Yeah. Um, and look, I'm you know I'm not I'm not delusional enough to think they jumped all over it because my name was attached to it. I don't know. You you were uh, I mean uh, you're you're a pretty big wheel down at the Cracker Factory, so to speak. Like uh, <laughs> at, at that point, uh, Ron Mars's name was all over the landscape i mean like you could you could throw a rock and hit ron mars i mean hopefully you know not too hard but like and, the fact is people did <laughs> but uh, but i'm so sure it was, it was a feather you know, in the cap was, but yeah but we didn't actually think they would do it we, yeah you know, and and in fairly short order they you know they being dc and dark horse came back and said yeah that sounds pretty good let's do that yeah and and then we we're like oh shit we got to come up with a story now. right because um, it's easy to say Batman aliens. And oh, then totally. Like, oh, then, what are you know? What are you gonna What are you gonna do for a hundred pages? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and I and I think, uh, as I recall, we had to we had to go down to uh, we had to go down to the city and uh, meet with Denny O'Neill, who was obviously the Batman editor at the time. And yep. We had we had lunch at Denny's favorite Indian restaurant, not too far from uh, the DC offices. And I don't know, his his notes on the whole thing were just like, uh, you know, just make sure Batman doesn't, you know, 
doesn't kill anybody. It was, you know, it was very yeah, don't don't very violate obvious, the basic very tenets obvious of the stuff. And then you know, we sort of you know patted us on our heads and sent us on our way. Yeah. Um. And we, and it was very little. You know, there was no pushback from 20th Century Fox. There was no pushback from from DC. We just kind of got to tell the story we wanted to tell. Yeah. And um, and I said to Bernie, like, what do you want to draw? What do you not want to draw? Right. And he said, buildings and cars. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> we're going to the right. Aztecs. <laughs> all right. No Batmobile. Uh, I guess we're I guess we're going. I guess we're going to go with uh, with Mayan ruins. Yeah. Um, and really, the Mayan ruin stuff came from uh, a trip that I had taken with uh, Jim Starlin and a few other people down to the Yucatan Peninsula to go look at a bunch of Mayan ruins. So cool. <laughs> um, that stuff had, had stuck in my brain and uh, I really wanted to, wanted to bring that into the book. So, yeah. um, you know, it was just the, the whole, the whole experience was such a pleasure. Um, and I know a, a lot of times I'll get questions about, well, is, you know, is it difficult to do those things when you've got two publishers and a film? Uh, yeah. That's... And, and, you know, yeah, once in a while it is once in a while you, you run into, it's usually somebody that doesn't understand how comics work. Right. Um, that is an obstacle in the process. But for that one, and for honestly, most of the other crossover things that I've done, um, there, there's very little, you know, like once you sort of get over the hurdle that the people you're working with think you know what you're doing, yeah, they generally leave you alone. Okay. Because I was going to say, like, the, the nitty-gritty of the crossover is something that I think a lot of people either take for granted or don't get at all. And I'm I'm among both of those categories. Uh, and I'd love to get a little bit more inside baseball about that. Because right now, you know, you're in this world. Like, okay, so DC versus Marvel ushers in this era of crossovers. you got, like, nonstop crossovers. I mean, Mar uh, DC and Dark Horse had a very long-standing relationship to the point where you have, like, recently printed trades that collect all of them. And so you have like some crossover companies that are hand in hand, DC and Dark Horse, pretty much there, there are there are very few obstacles except for creative that get in the way. But with with respect to the like Marvel and DC stuff, you know, you saw a ton of that stuff for a good couple of years, like for a good like five or six years, there were crossovers, like sequels to crossover, Batman, Daredevil, two of those, Spider-Man, Batman, you got uh, GL Silver Surfer, which by the way, uh, you wrote, not only was it baller, but also like, hey, did you ever want to do another one, and how come we never got one? <laughs> um, a lot of times, well, the, you know, some inside baseball stuff, um, a lot of times the, um, the way that those worked is that the companies would agree to do two of them mm. and they would each do one and, and each um, reap the benefits of one. Okay. Uh, now, now when you say reap the benefits, uh, cause we got to talk about sales and I, I, I don't want to get you in trouble. So don't feel, so feel free to leave, you know, anything out or any details or anything like that. But like when it comes to sales, is it 50, 50 or is it more like if there are two of them, DC publishes one, takes 100% of the profits, and then Marvel publishes one, takes 100% of the profits, that kind of thing? Um, it depends on how the deal is set up. Mm. Uh, but a lot of times when you see like two two different, you know, Punisher Batman. Right, right? exactly. Um, you'll see, you know, one will sort of be an obvious Marvel book and one will sort of be an obvious DC book. You can definitely see the difference. Um, also, I think they switch the logos like on the cover. So it's like yeah. whoever goes first is probably um, their book. And usually that's a, that's an indication that um, they agreed to do two projects and Marvel handles one editorially and reaps the, you know, and, and, you know, benefits from the sales of that. Okay. And then DC uh, does its own and benefits from the sales of that. Okay. Uh, for like when we did Marvel versus DC, the um, the issues were the issues were split as to who was handling them editorially. Yeah. Um, um, and I think I think I was the you know it was all sort of mixed together really. But I think I was the DC guy and Peter David was the, the was Marvel the Marvel guy. guy in terms of who we were actually working for, okay. like who, who who paid us, right? Uh, <laughs> so um, and it was all. You know, Mike Carlin was the DC editor, and Mark Grunewald was the Marvel editor that were that that were in charge of those projects, and um, those guys were best friends. So, uh, uh, so it was it was a very smooth process. But in terms of how it was split up, um, 
you know, Marvel and DC sort of handled their own, handled their own stuff. And, um, the liaison from one to the other were, was, was Carlin and Grunewald. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they, and, and also the, um, like the amalgam books were, were split down the middle. Instead. Yeah, but the amalgam books are, you know, everyone loves the amalgam books, uh, or at least the, <laughs> I was actually not a big fan of the amalgam books. I was like, what, is, what even is this? Like when I, when I, I remember when it came out, I'm like, right on DC versus Marvel. I'm in, I, I want to read this. Then the amalgam twist happens and I'm like, what even is this? And then they all came out. I'm like, what? What has happened? Like, it was just, there was no, you know, because no internet, no, like, you know, even Wizard didn't have a thing about it, and so we're all just kind of like left. Th is this the future now? Are we just living in this? <laughs> like, is well, Bruce Wayne just gonna be an agent of Shield forever? Like, and but uh, but now that you think about it, not only is it kind of an amazing achievement in publishing cohesion and synergy, but like, you know. It, it, who even thought of that? Like, where did it even come from? Well, that was, I mean, again, that was, that was Carlin and Grunewald. Really? Uh, were, who were both like huge nerds. Um, mm -hmm. And, and like I said, you know, best friends, Mike started his comics career at Marvel and then moved over to DC. Mm -hmm. And obviously Mark was a, you know, was a Marvel guy his, his whole career. Um, uh, that was, that was kind of the other shoe dropping mm -hmm. in the whole process. Cause, um, and I've told the story before the, the initial meeting for Marvel versus DC was held at Mark Grunewald's apartment uh, uptown in Manhattan because they didn't want us in the office, uh, talking about this. They didn't want a scene in the office and for anybody to figure out what was going on. Cause right. this was, you know, entirely top secret. The, the, the respective staffs at Marvel and DC didn't even know we were doing it for a while. Um, so we had the we had the meeting at Mark's apartment and, um, you know, it's Marvel versus DC. So you, you pretty much expect, well, Superman's going to fight the Hulk and Batman's right. going to fight Captain America. And, you know, so give the people what they want. Um, and then we got to. All right. And, you know, between issue three and four, this is what's going to happen. Um, and that's when. Mike and Mark told us about the amalgam concept and that we're going to do a dozen books, um, smashing the whole, smashing both universes together. Yeah. And I can remember sitting there slack jawed thinking, Oh my God, we're really going to do this. Yeah. Um, it just, it's just seemed nuts, like in the best possible way. Absolutely. Um, so, so obviously like they went, they already had the, the books figured out. They already had the characters figured out. Okay. Um, uh, which I assume was just the two of them sitting down and it has to have I mean, you know, making it, it, it up purely aesthetic, you know, like you have to assume that it was just, I want to see storm in a wonder woman costume. I want to see Batman with claws, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was just, it was, I, and most of them were obvious. And, and when they got to, when they got to strange fate, I said, well, I'm, I'm doing that one. Yes. Now the strange fate thing. Um, I love it because it's a hodgepodge of Dr. Fate and Dr. Strange, but then the big reveal is that it's neither of those guys. Yeah, well, the big reveal was was what, like, I wanted to do that from the beginning. Yeah. Because that wasn't part of, that wasn't part of the initial concept. The, the initial concept was uh, Doctor Strange and Doctor Fate. Right. And there wasn't really much thought to who was under the mask. Sure, yeah, and, well, yeah, because it makes sense. Like, it would have to be someone's head. Yeah. Um. So, so as we, you know, as we got into it, I said, well, like I want, I want the person under the mask to be uh, neither strange or fate. I want it to be somebody different. So there's a surprise at the end of it. Yeah. And and I had always loved the the the, the old X Men, you know, the Burn, Claremont, Austin stuff um, with uh, Charles Xavier in Cairo, um, you know, being kind of bald Indiana Jones for a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought that really plugged into a lot of the Dr. Fate backstory. So I was like, let's have it be Charles Xavier. And it went it went weeks before we could actually get Marvel to sign off on that. Really? Yeah, it was there's a there's so so over there in my office mm -hmm. um, hangs the original last page um, by Garcia Lopez I was and Kevin. Say, yeah. Um, of of 
the helmet coming off and Charles Xavier being revealed. So I have I actually have the original framed on the wall oh, over that's there. That's awesome. Um, that, that may be the best page of the book. Because I'm cool that way. <laughs> uh, so, um, and one of the reasons that that reveal takes place on the last page of the book, um, in addition to the fact that that's just dramatically where it belongs. Sure. One of the reasons is that the, the issue was written before we got permission for it to be Charles Xavier. So uh. um, that that page was obviously last to be drawn because we didn't get the permission for the actual reveal until we were pretty far into the book. Mm. Um, so uh, now why, why resistance? If I, uh, not to interrupt, I'm sorry, but uh, well, because I, I think part of it was that X-Men, you know, X-Men ruled the world at that point in right. terms of comic sales. Yeah. That was, you know, you know, X-Men was a bigger deal than, than Batman or Superman or anyone. Yeah. Frankly. So, um, so Marvel was very picky about how and where any of the X-Men characters got used in any of this stuff. Huh. Okay. Um, uh, which from a, from a sales. Oh, sure. Certainly understand. Um, so it, it took a while for that to get approved. And when it finally did, I was like, cool, he's going to, that helmet's going to come off and there's going to be a bald dude under there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I have, I have that, that lovely page framed on the wall. Yeah. And well, certainly one of my, one of my favorite art jobs that I've ever been involved in. And, um, and I, I think I've, uh, you know, I've told this story before too, that that was, frankly, the only time in my career that I was actually scared to write a script because I was working with Garcia Lopez yeah, man. and, <laughs> and that dude's brilliant. So yeah. like I had to, I had to write something worthy of Garcia Lopez or, you know, he would, he would, uh, he would, you know, scrape me off the bottom of his shoe, like the slug <laughs> that I am. And, um, so I, it took me couple of weeks of just, you know, not just spinning my wheels, not getting anything done on the script hmm. um, because I was so concerned about making sure that it was worthy of, of the, you know, the art team I was working with. Sure. Yeah. And, um, and then it kind of dawned on me that I could, I could write anything and it was going to look amazing because Garcia Lopez and Kevin Nolan were drawing it. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of like, oh, I, I, you know, I basically gave myself permission to suck at that point. Sure. <laughs> uh, and then just like sat down and wrote the entire script in two days. So nice. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, like I just had to had to wrap my head around the fact that man, no matter what I did, I was gonna, you know, yeah. I, I was gonna look like a genius because of the dudes who were drawing the story. I will say, I think Doctor Strange Fate may be one of the best of the Amalgam run. Uh, well, it was it was fun for it was fun for me because I could. I could blend elements of the Marvel versus DC stuff, uh, you know, the the plot line really into yeah. that storyline. Yeah, it's one of the only ones that actually connects to the story and actually utilizes that access character. Yeah, it was well, it was um, it, it was designed to do that, uh, and actually, you know, when when we actually did a, a trade paperback collection of of the whole story, um, the Strange Fate book is in the trade paperback collection. Oh, cool. Uh, so obviously there's no agreement to continue producing trade paperbacks or collections or whatever. I don't think there's been that. a printing so, of that in 15 you know, years more. Yeah. Well, I, you know, obviously I had like, you know, a case of a couple dozen copies and I had, you know, for years I had just been giving them out to like kids and stuff that would stop oh. over at the house. And now I think I have like one left. Oh, um, man. So, and, and they go for like, crazy money on ebay so yeah well because there there's like seemingly no plan to reprint them well you know look hopefully hopefully someday everybody comes to the table and says okay well we might as well you know there, it would be great to do a a big marvel versus dc library with all the different um all the different crossovers in it because yeah. like you said for a while there it was it was um just a you know sort of commonplace. That's the thing. It felt like it was a thing that you kind of took for you could take for granted. Where it's like, oh well, they'll get to that eventually. They did Superman, Fantastic Four. They'll eventually do it all, and then it just kind of stopped. And then you had a big gap. Then they did JLA Avengers, and this the era we're in right now. And I've talked about this on a number of shows. This is the longest gap between Marvel DC crossovers. It's been seventeen well, years since the last one. And well, for for so long, when we did Marvel versus DC stuff or Marvel DC crossovers, it was just comics. Right. Uh, 
and now it's not just comics. Now, um, now this is all. These are all sort of multi-billion-dollar media properties. Yeah. Um, which is not a bad thing by any means. Obviously, that's that helps it. everybody else. You know, that's like, a wonderful. That's a wonderful um, development in in you know what these characters and properties have become. Yeah. But it you know the fact that you know we're not just doing comics. The fact that these are um, these are completely worldwide brands now yeah. makes makes the uh, makes it a lot more difficult to put that kind of deal together. It's, and you know, hopefully, hopefully at some point it will, and we'll get the old stuff back into print and do some new stuff. I um, think at least the old stuff, if not new stuff, because like we're in a place where it's harmless to put out, put to put out something that has been produced that is well regarded and that that would sell. And that and that I think that's like at the end of the day, that's the carrot, right? Like that's the big. For me, at least in my uh, understanding of the industry, it's like. You know, when you put "and it'll sell" at the end of it, you'll probably have a like a, a higher likelihood of actually getting greenlit because it. Yeah, and you know. and certainly, you know, sales mean different things to different companies, and um, you know, these are uh, Marvel and DC are obviously IP farms uh, right. in addition to being publishers, um, which is is you know that's not at all. Uh, a bad thing to say. I mean, it's it's well, it's not it's not incorrect. These IP farms. <laughs> But, you know, again, especially with with what the industry is facing right now in terms of where we're going to sell our product, um, something something that gets people excited, something that gets people back into stores when when the stores can open their doors again Mm -hmm. and something that um, that will put dollars in uh, local comic shop cash registers. Right. It's obviously it's it's obviously good. Yeah. Uh, so you know who knows who knows where it'll where to go, but fingers crossed. I think we can, you know, there are tools in place to do some good. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's funny because you know you've um, we've we've talked about how we can get these things like how it would how a rising a rising tide raises all ships, right? Sure. Like you get everybody together, you get them in comic shops, you're going to get everybody paid. Um, in terms of the industry itself and where it's headed, because you you touched on where we are right now, because you know if you're watching this a couple of years from now, uh, I apologize, but right now we're in this very very interesting period. Uh, it's it's scary, it's horrible, and it's and it's you know terrifying, but also very fascinating if you're looking at it from like a you know an anthropologist's perspective, you know where you're like okay, so right now there are no comic shops open or selling new books. The big two and independent publishers are not producing books. In fact, only Marvel and DC are have greenlit new books being produced. They're just not being printed or sent anywhere. And you have a marketplace that could you could sell them in digital uh, arenas True. or stores nowhere. Um, is this the shakeup? Like, is this the moment where comics are gonna, for lack of a better term, grow up? Where it's like they're gonna go, you know what? Maybe one distribution model, like you said, is not the way to go, or maybe we need to take more seriously the alternate distribution models. Well, I think you know, God, we could, you know, we could spend days talking about. I have, (laughs) and where you know, and where where we think it's going, and and ultimately, I don't know that anybody knows where it's going, including the publishers. Um, I think you're right. This is this is such. Um, untested ground and yep. and really came about so suddenly that um, not I don't think anybody really knows what the right answers are. No, um, I don't, I'm not I'm not sure anybody even knows what the questions are. Right. Um, but you know, for right now, the bigger publishers are like, yeah, keep keep going on whatever assignments you are, are in front of you. Yeah. Um, smaller publishers are like, wait a minute. Um, if no one can buy them, why are we making them? Like, yeah, like we, we don't we don't know what's going to happen, so let's put put a pause on things. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting that some of the like some of the stuff that I'm working on is is original graphic novel stuff. Yeah, um, and that's not affected at all. You know, just right. you know, uh, Rick Leonardi and I are doing a, an original graphic novel that. Um, of about 150 pages that has not been announced yet. Oh, wow. uh, so, yeah, <laughs> well, that's exciting. Uh, yeah, it's cool, and it's not it's not affected in any way. Um, just just keep going because it's you know 
we're doing a book. We're not doing a periodical. Um, right. We're not carving it up into 20 page chunks and putting it out in pamphlets. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's a, that's, that's definitely shots fired at the monthly singles format. No, I not, think. Even, not even shots fired. It's just a different format. I think one of the things that, that comics is facing is that it, essentially we as an industry produce books, but we sell them as periodicals. Right. You're absolutely right about that. And, um, and I'm not even like, like I, th I think of the, the market and, and how we sell these books. It's, it's a big pie. And, yeah all of the slices um, are necessary to make up the pie. And it's okay. it's monthly comics, it's collected editions, it's original graphic novels, it's digital. Um, we need all of it. Um, and and yeah. comics, you know, I, last year again set a sales record in terms of dollars. True. Um, but we, you know, the, the market is expanding to, uh, to people who didn't used to read comics at all. Um, yeah. And people who are discovering comics now, I think, by and large, do not go to the comic shop um, and pick up their books every week. No, I, I think you're they, right. They, they, they go to a uh, Barnes & Noble or they go to a comic shop and get a collection. Yep. Um, they read digitally. Uh, so I think more and more of what the industry is doing is trending towards books rather than periodicals. It's, you know, it's not an accident that DC invested – a large chunk of of capital and um, uh, a large chunk of capital and uh, time and energy into doing um, original graphic novels and and specifically original graphic novels for a YA audience. Um, yeah. Oh, that, well, that's the sweetest plum right now because like there are books that are produced essentially to become original graphic novels like we're just like hey can we get two slices of the same pie right like yeah oh absolutely so so you know i think what's going on right now is maybe going to hasten some of that um some of that direction to producing stuff as an ogn yeah uh, because that's what more of the market is looking at yeah. uh but financially that's also a a large uh uh, a large outlay of cash for the publisher to make for the creative team to actually do the work. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, you know, if you have to pay for a hundred pages worth of material before you ever see dime one, you need, you need fairly deep pockets to, um, um, to actually um, pay for that before True. the book gets into the distribution system. So yeah. it's, 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 you know, it's a different financial model than a lot of, publishers using the direct market um, well and i think that's market. i think that's why we have such a divisive niche audience reading them because it takes kind of effort to even understand it like if you if you were to say to somebody um yeah we made this movie right and it's it uh it cost this much to produce and i'm going to release it about 30 minutes at a time and you and and by the way, if you don't buy each thirty-minute chunk of the movie, we're not going to finish the movie. Yeah, it's it's look in a lot of ways, it's an antiquated model, and and I think we're we're always going to produce monthly comics to one extent or the other. Yeah, but it's an antiquated model uh, financially, and it's an antiquated model in terms of what the audience wants. We're we're a binge society now. Yes, uh, we we want the whole thing right now. Put it in front of me. Right. Um, and, you know, like you said, you, you can't tell the audience, uh, we're going to give you a chunk of the story and come back in a month. Right. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, part part of the audience gets pissed off now um, <laughs> with with stuff like The Mandalorian coming out weekly. Yeah. Rather than give me the whole thing right now. Right. That being um, said, though, I think that was the right amount of delay for The Mandalorian. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I agree completely from the standpoint of, personally not having the time to sit down and watch eight episodes in a row. Right. Um, you know, watching one a week is, is actually, I think pretty great. And it also extends the life of the thing that you're doing it, yeah. uh, over two months. You know, people are excited for two months rather than for a weekend. Well, it's brilliant in a, in, in a number of ways. And I think one of them that we need to really isolate is it's also just purely excellent. And, that's the kind of thing where, like, if you look at, like, the Marvel shows uh, from Netflix, yeah. um, you you can't deny that 
care, effort, and love was put into pretty much every of those, every one of those shows, except maybe one, and <laughs> uh, maybe two. And the the fact is, you know, there are there were too many episodes, I think, and if they had spaced them out, if they had done the same thing with the, like if they just literally done the same thing with, as Mandalorian with what they had, right? 13 episodes per show, one week apart, all those shows would have died because there's just, there were, there were a couple of lulls. There were a couple of slow parts there. You know, just, it wasn't always excellent. Well, the Mandalorian really struck me. And, and maybe because, you know, I, I grew up, when there was network TV <laughs> uh, and you had to wait, you know, once a week to see your thing. Yeah. But the Mandalorian struck me as, as, you know, basically like a 1950s Western TV series yeah. that just happened to be set in space. Right. Um, and it, it had those rhythms to it. So I think that, that, you know, every episode being for the most part, somewhere different. Um, and then sort of tying it all up at the end um, just really worked very well in terms of of how the audience responded to it um yeah you know i think about like obviously right now everybody's home everybody's binging stuff um uh you know everybody's talking about well did you know did carol baskin kill her husband or not right. <laughs> yeah that's the big conversation right? of the day uh, because because we all binged that show um over a weekend right um in two weeks, nobody's going to be talking about it. No, because it's going to be gone. Yeah, um, which isn't necessarily again necessarily a bad thing, um, but it it's not going to have the long lasting impact that something like the Mandalorian does. Um, uh, and certainly, they're by far different different storytelling experiences. Sure, um, but I kind of like that that old school model of you get you know you get one a week and then you got to wait a week. Yeah. Um, um, I think, and I think a week feels like it's, it's an okay time frame. Well, and that's the thing. Um, yeah, you're I, absolutely right. So, you know, if, you know, to make the comics analogy, if we were putting out books every week that yeah. continue to storyline, I think the audience would come along for it. Absolutely. Um, if we're putting out books once a month, which is, you know, which is frankly, I was going to say, which is what the production schedule can do. And frankly, it's the production schedule really can't handle monthly books. No. Um, and now we're in bi-monthly with most of these like top tier books. And it's like, you're, it's, you're overworking your artists. You're, you're expecting like double time. It's, it's, I think it's unsustainable. It's, it's tough. The, the math really doesn't work yeah. um, in terms of, in terms of the art. Uh, everything revolves around the art because yep. it's a visual medium and somebody has got to draw these things. That's the reality. Like, um, it, you know, it doesn't matter how good the story is. If it's, if the art isn't, up to snuff or if it's just lower quality it's just it's it, it's gonna devalue the entire work oh yeah by far the you know the I, I can write you know i can write the best script in the world and if they hand it to somebody that doesn't to, to an artist that doesn't know what he or she is doing it's it's not it's uh, gonna fail my my story sucks at the end of the day exactly and and if i write a mediocre story and they give it to say garcia lopez and kevin nolan to draw <laughs> i'm a genius at the end of the day no matter what happens exactly yeah, so it, it it feels like the the thing that th that blows my mind right now in this very uncertain and desperate time, I think, is that you you when you entered the comic industry in like '89, I'm sure they were talking about how it was dying. Oh yeah, comics has been dying for every year that I've been in the business. Right, uh -oh. and and if and and sometimes it's hyperbole, and sometimes you know, like in the '90s, maybe they were kind of right, and and I don't mean like it was bad. I just mean like there were desperate times. Marvel went bankrupt. You know, DC got you know DC was in was was being outsold by Image. You know, they were they were, they were desperate times. But if you're if you are at the helm and you are told that there's a hole in your boat. At some point or other, you probably want to draw up a plan to plug the hole. And to, 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 to imagine that the comic industry right now is faced with these surprises that threaten the industry, or at the very least the distribution model, and to tell me that, they have, that they're caught with their pants down, I think is ridiculous. Because it means that they've never been planning any... Like, 
do am I really so naive to think that they didn't have any plan in place to deal with if Diamond were to, let's say, collapse or if comic book stores went out of business? Well, I, I think to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I, I, nobody expected, obviously, this. Nobody expected this to... No, not this specifically. Uh, but, you know, I think there are... are it, it's been such a stable ecosystem in terms mm. of how books are sold um, that I, you know... Well, predictable, just, certainly. Yeah. Uh, you sort of... This is this is how we this is how we do uh this is this is how it works right. and um you look to expand from that you look to you know sell ogns uh into uh box stores and right. you look to, and because because look despite the the initiative to get uh 100 page books into walmart which i yeah. thought was great i think uh, it was a great idea too but uh, it just didn't work but but ultimately comics are not a you know, comics are not a great um, sort of point of purchase product in stores where um, people aren't specifically looking for comics. Right. Uh, right there's okay. a lot of there's a lot of damages to the product. There's you know, it's a uh, for the product to to take up shelf space at five bucks a pop. Um, you know, retailers, retailers who are not, you know, comics retailers. Right. Are, you know, are not going to be falling all over themselves to um, to stock a product that only makes them five bucks a pop. And right. and, you know, you get a lot of damages and you can't sell them. And it's so it's it's a it's a tricky proposition. Selling a book that you can rack on a shelf and cost 20 or 25 bucks is a lot more enticing to a non-traditional comic shop retailer. Right. Um, so, uh, again, I think more of what we do is going to trend in that direction. Um, but obviously the, like you said, there's a hole in the boat right now. Uh, obviously the, the main thing now is to get comic shops, which are the, the, by far the backbone of the industry. I mean, that's where, that's where the, 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 the sure money for publishers comes from. Right. Cause once a public, you know, a, a publisher sells its product to diamond diamond sells it to local comic shops and the local comic shops own those books. Right. Um, if if somebody decides they want five thousand copies of Batman, he owns five thousand copies of that Batman issue. Exactly. There's you know, th there's no sending them back to DC and saying, I only sold I only sold forty. <laughs> I'd like to send the rest back. Right. Um, that's not that's not the way this works. Well, but uh, the the comic book retailer certainly holds them accountable for their product. And whenever you hear. A, a, a comic shop merchant, you know, musing or, or 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 complaining about, you know, their woes. It's usually the publisher's fault because they didn't do X Y Z, and it's like, well, you were on the hook to order them. Like you, you're on you're on your honor to kind of figure out how, you know, what to what to order, how much to order. But you know, the the publishers also. You know, you never know whether they're going to introduce a new Harley Quinn type character, and it's going to be you know crazy a, sell a crazy seller. And yeah, it's it's a you know it's an imperfect model, certainly. Yeah. Uh, because because the the almost the entirety of the sales risk goes to the local shop. Yeah. Um, and the local shop has to be has to be pretty smart and 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 how it orders. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and that's why I think a lot of times you'll see. You know, you'll see a shop that gets, you know, that gets it again. I'll just use Batman because it's an easy example. It's a good example because it's like the it's the one it's like the top selling book every month. Yeah. So, so you know, if if a store, you know, gets in 50 copies of Batman for the week and sells 48 of them by the weekend. Yeah. Man, that owner's happy because oh, he's definitely. not stuck with back stock. <laughs> However, you know, for the next three three weeks, some, if people come in and look for, you know, want a copy of that issue of Batman, that owner doesn't have them. Like, yeah. so he's he's lost out on sales. He's happy because he sold everything that he invested. Yeah. But he's also losing out on sales that he can't make now because he didn't have enough copies. Right. Um. So again, it's it's an imperfect model, and and sort of that retailer, if he goes, well, I I sold fifty copies of Batman. Maybe next time I'll order fifty-two copies and see how that goes. <laughs> um, there's there's not an incentive 
there's not a, a lot of incentive for a retailer to to go big on something. No. And there's a lot of risk involved. And that's um, right. So, so you'll see, you know, I sold, you know, I sold 50 copies this month. I'll order, you know, I'll order 55 for next month. Right. Um, so sales, you know, and, and that's why that's why the normal um, the normal sales model in comics is attrition. Um, and, and one of the things that certainly on the publisher end, one of the things that is very true, has been true for as long as I've been in the business is the best way to lose sales is just do a solid monthly book. Really? You know, uh, the, because attrition is, you know, people wander away or people, you know, have people come in to spend, spend, you know, 20 bucks a, a week on comics. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're producing issue 37 of, of whatever title it is, and there's a hot new number one that people are interested in, they're probably going to put their money in the hot new number one, um, rather than just keeping, just continuing to buy, um, the solid book that they, they generally enjoy every month or, but maybe, you know, it's like seeing a prettier girl on the other side of the street. Right. Uh, so, um, so that's why, you know, we're in a cycle of titles relaunching. Yes. Well, I mean, and, and when we, because that, because that number one issue and the, and the chance to, to attract a new reader with a number one issue and a new team is one of the only tools we have to get the audience interested in. Uh, that, that sounds like a broken system to me. If it's like, if, if all I can rely on to shore up sales on a consistent basis and stay in business is to constantly upend the table and, and upset the apple cart. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a spiraling cycle. Cause you can, um, can you imagine, I don't mean to interrupt it, but like, can you imagine if, uh, the Mandalorian, great show, incredible format. Can you imagine if they were like, next season, they, they just completely betray the model and go, well, you know, we got to keep people interested. So we're going to, you know, we're going to make them do all kinds of, you know, we're going to bring back Darth Vader and we're going to, you know what I mean? Like, we're going to do things yeah, let's, that, let's, that. Let's recast everybody. And yeah, like we're going to start, start from scratch because we got to, we got to have fresh new viewers on this show. Like, no, the, 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 the the thing that everybody would say to do with a sure show, you know, like the death of every show that is from like network TV is when they introduce the kid or they divorce, or, you know, or when like, you know, Bruce Willis and whoever like break up, you know, I'm, I'm using a very old reference, but yeah. like, <laughs> but you know, like it, it's just, just make a consistent product and they'll continue to buy the book or the watch the show. I, I feel like that should be the model. And if it isn't the model, then maybe there's there's something wrong with what we're doing here. I don't I don't know what it is. Just it just feels kind of like disingenuous. I don't know. Not to. Um, <laughs> well, it's a, it's. Uh, I don't look. If I you know if I had the answer, I would be. That's fair. <laughs> um, I would be. Um, you know, I'd be. I'd be kind of a genius. Right. Um, it's you know the 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 model is is broken in some respects, but it's still. You know, it still works in others. Um, having, um, you know, having a a big uh, sort of upend the table moment that's going on right now in the direct market, yeah. uh, like this, I think is gonna is gonna cause the industry as a whole to kind of reconsider how how we're doing this. And and um, I hope so. I mean, you know, it's it's. Uh, I don't think it's fair to cast Diamond as a villain, really. Right. Um, you know, it's not it's not their fault that they're a monopoly. Uh, <laughs> well, right? because how can you blame them, right? Like they're they're a business, they're in charge of their business. They they took the funny thing is, of course, like you know, you sure you can't blame you you can't demonize them, but at the same time, I also don't really have much sympathy. You know, it's like whereas if, if you are in a, if you are a monopoly and you 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 arrange thing, things to become a monopoly, if you can't be sustainable after one week of no sales, maybe you didn't deserve to be a monopoly in the first place. Um, well, it's look, comics are a very uh, close to the bone, yeah, um, business for it's always been down to the wire for yeah. everybody involved. Um, so when you have something like this that really that really knocks everybody off balance, it's it's uh, it's really damaging. That's true. Uh, 
when when you are when this is um, when this is your um, when this is sort of your operating paradigm uh, that uh, that you've always been used to and now it's and now it's gone yeah uh, everybody's scrambling to come up with okay what's our you know first what's the band-aid um, um, and then you know okay what's the what's the more long-term fix and again right. I you know I don't I'd be lying if I said I knew uh, true true yeah but, um, but it's gonna it's gonna take everybody you know we can't be uh, we can't all be pulling at the oars and in, in different directions it's no, got true it's got to be pulling in in one direction um, uh, so um, it's a it's a sense of you know band-aid for now to you know to stop the bleeding and then right. and then hopefully we get to the point where there's a uh, a concerted effort to uh, fix some of the some of the gaps in the system. Yeah, yeah, because I think that I mean, and I think there's a genuine effort to do that. I know that like the the efforts that at the time of this recording, uh, the the big two publishers at least are, are are taking are doing exactly what you're saying. It's it's let's let's stop the bleeding now, and then we will come up with a solution later. And I don't think they're gonna cut out Diamond. I, I think that. You know, Diamond is hurting, but Diamond is also the infrastructure in place. I, I, I used to pitch the idea of like, hey, didn't Marvel and DC used to distribute themselves? Like, why don't they do that again? But, you know, it's been 25, 35 years of one distribu distributor and them not doing it. So it would not be a simple matter of saying, okay, yeah, Marvel and DC are just going to distribute their books from now on. It's going to be... Like it would re it would require them to completely rebuild their own infrastructure and hire people and come up with a whole new system. Like, and they're not going to do that <laughs> because yeah. Well, it's well right now. Obviously, the you know the job number one is to you know sell just, books. just write the ship. You know, just you know have a way to have a way to get books into people's hands. Um, uh, and again, it's it's going to be um, ho hopefully everybody pulling in the same direction. I think this. This really kind of um, stunned so many people. I think we're still in in, in shock. Know, everybody's kind of dazed. Yeah, uh, that's and then, fair. And it's gonna it's gonna take some. I, I think companies. I think publishers are coming up with what their um, um, uh, are coming up with what their their own reaction is going to be. Right. Okay. okay. What, what do we do? What do we do for our customers, which are the are the uh, which is Diamond slash local comic shops. Diamond's customers at the local comic shop. What are we going to do about that? And what are we going to do about the people that are on staff? And yeah. what are we going to do about people that are um, that are uh, are freelancers? You know, right. do we, have we told them to not work for a month till we figure out what's going on? Which is, you know, that's a whole other issue. Yeah. Or are we, you know, are we, you know, can we continue to pay them even though we're not getting funds from Diamond? Yeah. Um, the way our the way the market is set up is you know the books the, the shops sell the books and they pay diamond and diamond gets those funds and they pay the publishers and the publishers get those funds and then they pay the freelancers and their staff right so it's it's absolutely an ecosystem um, where if one of the if one of the links in that chain falls apart it affects everybody yeah and I, that's where we are right now yeah, that, that's the thing that um, people like myself probably discount is that, like, it is entirely – we're all connected. It is it is all connected. And even people on my end are feeling it. I was talking to a friend of mine and a colleague um, who we make our living on comic books and discussing comic books or covering comic books. And when there are no new books, there are no new viewers. Like, the viewers are not, are interested in the new turnover and the new books and their yeah. – and, and, you know, if there are no new books, you know, your, your writers, your artists aren't getting paid. Dime's not getting paid. Local comic shops aren't getting paid. Like, no one's doing well. And uh, so it's interesting to see, like, if you remove one element, the whole thing comes apart. Yeah, it's 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 a balancing act. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think one of the things that's been certainly on Twitter and people are talking about is, look, if you can if you can um, if you can put a couple of bucks into your retailer's pocket. Um, All the better. While they're not getting, while they're not getting new product, 
do that. You know, there's there if there are no new books, there are at least new to you books. Yeah. Uh, there's you know that trade collection or that artist edition that you've been holding off on uh, purchasing. Now's the time to get it. Right. Um, if if you're at all able, although you know, obviously, look, there. Well, everyone's kind of feeling the pinch for everybody. Right? You know, yeah. you know, are 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 you still gainfully employed? And the answer is different <laughs> for a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the I think the uncertainty of all this is what's what's really um, sort of ratcheting up the anxiety on everybody. I think you're uh, right. Yeah. Is you know you don't know you don't know what your job future is going to be. You don't know if you're going to go out into you know, the grocery store and, and contact the virus. That's the thing. Uh, and if you do, you know, how bad is it going to be? It's just the, the uncertainty I think is what, um, is what is so, uh, draining. On hmm. people. Um, yeah. and I think I, I, you know, I can, I draw the conclusion when I was at CrossGen, uh, and we lived in Florida, um, we had hurricanes roll through. Yeah. Because of course it is Florida. Right. Uh, <laughs> And uh, the uncertainty of where the hurricane was going to go, was it going to hit your area or was it going to slam somewhere else on the peninsula? Um, that was always much worse than when the actual hurricane showed up. Huh. The, the uncertainty was was just really anxiety laden. Yeah. Once, once you knew it was going to happen one way or the other, you could deal with it. But sure. that period of... You know, is is the hurricane going to roll right up Tampa Bay and over my house or is it going to go in? You know, is it is it going to take a take an abrupt right turn and uh, make somebody else's life miserable, you know, an hour away? Yeah. Um, so um, well, that's yeah. that's what I think of in, in these times of uncertainty when you're dealing with the, these anxiety producing uh, events is the not knowing is a lot worse than the knowing. Yeah, yeah, because you're you're trying to predict the unpredictable and you're trying to counter it. And like I can imagine with CrossGen back then preparing for the hurricane, you're like, okay, well, should we stop production? Should we move offices? How are we going to like, you know what I mean? Like it's just constantly in flux and it's yeah, very I mean, paralleling with what you we're could doing do. Now. You could do. Yeah, I, I remember going through that a few times and, you know, like everybody's everybody's computers went up on their desks, everybody like anything that you didn't want to maybe get wet from, uh, from flooding. Yeah. Um, you know, had to go up three feet. Yeah. Uh, and you know, then the weekend after the hurricane passed and the office didn't flood, you went back to work and then put everything back down. <laughs> you know, you sort of went back to normal, mm. but that, that, that not knowing of that, that period of not knowing, what sort of precautions were were necessary was always the worst. Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually really insightful because it allows. Uh, it, I think it informs where we are now because it, it for for many of us, myself included, you know, it's kind of like, oh, this is unprecedented. Maybe it's throwing everything into tumult. Who knows where the future is going to be? And maybe it's just the worst of it is the reaction. I but, I think um, you know, and the only reason I have any sensibility for that is the is that those hurricane experiences where, yeah. where, you know, you were constantly listening to the, you know, watching TV, listening to the radio online, trying to get information about what was going to happen. Yeah. And I think we're, you know, we're in the same exact boat right now with, uh, the coronavirus is, you know, what's going to happen? How much worse is it going to get? Where are the next outbreak centers? Um, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh, I think that sort of overload of information, um, can really be damaging after a certain point. Definitely. Uh, the, the fact that you're, you know, you're constantly updating, you know, updating the web, updating Twitter to find out what the hell's going on. Yeah. Um, becomes this sort of feedback loop of anxiety. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, before we wrap up, uh, you teased the project with Rick Leonardi. Can you tease any more? Um, about that one specifically or just yeah, well, in general? Well, what's, what's happening in the world of Ron Mars and what can we get next, man? Um, let's see. We have that, we have that OGN from, uh, Rick Leonardi, which I can't, I can't tell you what publisher. Okay. Um, cause it hasn't been announced yet and publishers sort of would like that stuff jealously. Fair enough, yeah. Um, 
Uh, let's see. What else have I got going? I, there's, a, there's a number of things that I'm doing that I can't talk about because they're not announced yet. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> so the headline is just, Rick, see, Ron Mars is working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like I ever get up in the morning and, you know, don't know what to do. No, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, the biggest chunk of my job is still I'm editor-in-chief of Ominous Press. And yeah. we're doing projects. We've got um, the, the Kickstarter for um, the Demigod uh, trade paperback is still is is this is the last week it'll be live. And we need, a, I think, I don't know, a couple thousand bucks, something like that to... To hit the printing goal, all the work is done. Yeah. Um, we have some we have some more projects um, in the uh, in the in the wings, as they say, that um, we'll be announcing or and getting out onto Kickstarter platforms or uh, Indiegogo within the next month or two months. Yeah. Um, some cool stuff coming. Um, I just I just turned in the um, Green Lantern 80th anniversary story that Daryl Banks is drawing, um, which the first few pages have come back and they just look amazing. Awesome. Um, Daryl and I did uh, a graphic novel called Harkins Raiders, which is a World War II story that we did through Ominous, um, which is complete. Um, uh, it's in a hardcover, it's oversized hardcover format, sort of like a, uh, European album format. Um, oh, cool. So it was, um, yeah, when, you know, when you're the editor in chief, you can sort of, <laughs> you can green like that. You can, you can campaign for the format that you really want to do it in. So, yeah. um, I really like, uh, again, to sort of stray back to that discussion of, uh, original graphic novels and publishing comics as books rather than periodicals. Yeah. Um, we did a, you know, we did a, uh, a decent chunk of story in a, in a hardcover you know, here it is. It's you know one and done. Uh, you get you get your money's worth out of the out of the thing right out of the gate. Um, uh, so appealing. So um, yeah, I you know, and I'm I'm not immune to sort of trying to publish the kind of books that I like to read. Um, you know, it's uh, and when you have platforms like uh, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you can you can do that. Uh, right. And, and certainly, so that's, that's one end of what we do at Ominous and there's other, you know, there are other irons in the fire as well. So, um, you know, I'm, I, I never, like I said, I never, you know, sort of scratch my head and wonder what to do when I get up in the morning, there's always something to do and stories are being written and stories are being edited and, uh, uh, and we'll announce them, you know, over the next few months as we all hang through this together. Nice. Well, uh, Ron, thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you so much for talking with us and for giving us a great insight into where we are, where we're going, where we've been, and uh, a little bit of inside baseball. I really appreciate it. Sounds good, man. Happy to do it. Let's do it again. Definitely. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks a lot for listening and watching, and we'll see you guys then. I'm Sal, and uh, that was Ron Mars. So long.